if you're hearing a sermon and I'm giving the sermon, <laughs> we're all in trouble. Anyhow, um, last week John Swanger said that he was honored to be the last one to preach in the series that we've been doing this summer on the Lord's Prayer. What surprise. Only at scum would we skip something in the middle and then come back to it at the end. But that was, you know, for, for a sad reason. Um, Mike and Mary had to go out of town when her mom died. So I'm finishing up now with Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm told that it always goes over well at SCUM to start with personal stories. So I've got one about Craig. And we have a, we have a rule in our family that if you, well, if you use each other as a sermon illustration without telling, you're absolutely busted. If you get permission, then it's toned down to just an Omi dinner or Omi Starbucks. But anyhow, um, if you know Craig Blomberg, teaches at Denver Seminary, he's written a few books, like, Uh, 15 or so, speaks a lot, literally, all over the country. We've traveled internationally. Um, And he gets invited a lot of times for debates, debates about the scripture or debates about Christianity. And one of the ones that I enjoyed the most was kind of weird. Back in 2006, when the Da Vinci Code came out, the Douglas County Public Library decided to sponsor a debate. And they invited Craig as the conservative, and they flew this other woman in from California, and we still to this day don't really know what her qualifications were. Um, she said she was in the middle of writing a book about how the Catholic Church had uh, not treated women well. To the best of my knowledge, I cannot find that that book was ever published. I don't know if it had to do with that night or not. The panelist asking questions of these two debaters um, was made up of local broadcasters and TV people. And most of their questions were things like, you know, about can you believe the Bible the way it's portrayed in the Da Vinci Code? Is the church history correct as it's portrayed in the Da Vinci Code? And, of course, you know, I mean, Craig's on his mark. because I mean, this, this is his field. He knows this. This other woman had nothing. It, I mean, it got embarrassing. Really, all she had was an attitude. And, you know, Craig was being very, very gracious and sometimes even giving a little information for her side, even if he didn't agree with it, anything to try to balance this out. And this woman, finally, she got so frustrated. She goes, I came here for an argument, and you won't even argue with me. And Craig was like, well, no. (laughs) And it was about at that point we knew that debate was over, pretty much. Um, But I have, you know, that, that calm... Gracious. I mean, this woman's like tearing into him, and he's just helping her out in her arguments. But I've also seen Craig um, when he is very, very much in debate with one of his intellectual peers, people who maybe have never had any Christian faith at all, atheist from the get-go, or folks who have left the faith, really super well-educated people who have done a 180, and they can argue really well against the Christian faith. And he continues to be calm, gracious, concedes when they're right. The man is unflappable. 
absolutely unflappable. Um, and I promised I wouldn't tell any of the other stories about him. But this actually does tie into the sermon tonight about the kingdom coming. Because I am very aware that Craig is not depending on his brains in these situations. His confidence is totally in his God. He knows where he stands with God. He knows the truth of Scripture, and he knows the reality of the kingdom of God. And he's just calm. He doesn't have to get upset or bridled. And I appreciate that. So as we're looking at this verse tonight, um, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now most, well, I don't know about most of us, I don't have much of a problem with um, worrying about the will of God. I kind of trust that if it's God's will, God's perfect. I may not personally want to follow his will, but it's probably going to be a good will. And the kingdom coming in heaven someday out there, I'm okay with that too. Because, you know, heaven is a beautiful place filled with glory and grace. Oh, anyhow. I, heaven, you know, the kingdom out there in the future in heaven, I'm okay with that. But is there anybody else like me whose stomach goes into a little bit of a knot when you hear this idea of the kingdom coming on earth? You know, sometimes it can even sound sexist. Sorry, John. No, but kingdom's coming. Or it can sound militaristic, the kingdom is coming. And I think we have two main misinterpretations of this that kind of that sit, don't sit right with us, and they shouldn't. And one of them, like I mentioned, is this idea that the kingdom coming is going to be a force, a power. It's going to be us taking over the world. Yeah, you know, we're going to be the Christian soldiers. Onward we go. And this may well have been even what the Jews were thinking. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God over and over and over, one of his main messages. And they were living in an occupied country. They would be happy if the kingdom of God came and got rid of the Romans. We saw the debacles of the Crusades when the Christian armies went out to take back the Holy Land. And even in more modern times, colonial times, um, Puritans setting up Christian towns for the Native Americans, Spanish encomiendas, same idea, extract the natives from their locale, put them in these Christian towns. Craig and I just got back from Australia and learned that as late as the 1970s, the Australian government was routinely taking Aboriginal children away from their homes to raise them in Christian institutions. So basically, Any Aboriginal over the age of 40 has a good likelihood of having been raised as an orphan for the sake of the gospel. You talk about social problems among that generation, and you talk about distrust of the church. This this whole idea of conquering in the name of Christ, thy kingdom come on earth, it doesn't sit well with us, and it probably shouldn't. But, you know, typical humans that we are, we like to then just swing to the other extreme. And there are those who would say, well, the kingdom of God, it's in my heart. It's Jesus reigning in my heart. And they would just turn a blind eye to what is in the world around them. Um, I sometimes wonder how our kids, maybe how any of us, ever learned any decent theology with the songs we sing to children. 
Let the flag fly high in the castle of my heart, because the king is in residence there. Anybody? Anybody? Thoroughly embarrassed myself? Thank you, May. Okay. Whole world, no. Let the whole world, no. Okay. But it's escapism. That idea of Jesus reigning in my heart and only reigning in my heart or him reigning out there in heaven someday, somewhere. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a pastor in Germany, killed during World War II for his involvement in a plot to overthrow Hitler, wrote, whoever evades the earth in order to find God does not find God because God is present and active in the mess of this fallen creative world. So we got two bad things going on here. We've got the triumphalistic take over the world, kingdom come on earth, and we've got the reverse escapist kingdom come in my heart with no involvement, no sense of responsibility, and we know they both they don't sit right. I think that's the spirit of God in us telling us the kingdom of God is something else. What? Let me get a little abstract, but hang in there with me. Kingdom of God the rule of God, the reign of God, the authority of God. I've written here, the kingdom comes when communion between the creator and his creation is achieved. The kingdom of God pulsates reconciliation, restoration, renewal, redemption, reconciliation, redemption. Those, those concepts are the heartbeat and the throbbing of the kingdom of God when it is enacted here on earth as it is in heaven. Because we serve a God whose entire purpose in being in relationship to his creation is redemption, reconciliation, restoration, salvation. So when the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, it will be characterized by the rule of God the reign of God, the authority of God. Now, let me tell you something, folks. The kingdom does not come by democratic vote. We don't get to choose whether the kingdom of God exists. We don't get to choose whether the kingdom of God is active now. We don't vote God off the island or destroy him and his existence by our disbelief. This is, this is key to having that confidence in the kingdom. That God is creator. And from the beginning of creation to the time of Christ himself living the perfect life as should exemplify anyone serving the kingdom, to the death and resurrection of Christ when all sin and evil and death was conquered, to the very consummation of the end of the world when Christ returns, the kingdom of God is over all. Whether any individual is in allegiance to that kingdom or not. I may not agree with every elected public official we have, but I am under them, whether I like it or not. The kingdom of God is a reality. It is the rule of God. It's the rule of the creator. It's the authority of the one who made it all. We don't have to make it on his behalf. We don't have to fight for it. It is. And that fact should give us great hope and confidence. So how does this kingdom come? Well, it comes back from the future. Like I said, 
the full assurance that in Christ's death and resurrection, sin and death and evil has been conquered, that Christ will come again, bringing that perfection here to earth, tells us how we are to live as kingdom citizens here and now. Here's, here's an example. Again, when, when Craig and I, probably like any healthy, engaged couple, when we got engaged, we began planning our life together. We weren't married yet. Um, we met and married within 10 months. We did it quick because he had a scholarship to study in Scotland, and I wanted to go. <laughs> so you can ask him how I pro- made him propose. But anyhow. Hey, we're going to be married 34 years next Sunday. Thank you. And the, the joke is always 33 years of wedded bliss, and the other one we're not telling you about. So. But when we got engaged, we began planning our life together as one, based on the idea that in the future, vows would be taken and that promise would be consummated. Now, if I had been engaged to a man who said, I am choosing where we live, and I am planning our finances, and on the day we get married, then you can begin to have a voice in it, I, that would not have been healthy. We lived engaged based on the promises that would be made. Just like now, we live on earth as it is in heaven. We have no excuse not to live toward any standard less than the full experience of the perfection and love and grace and truth of God. Why would we live toward anything else? So the future, the truth of the future comes back to us now. The kingdom also comes with a lot of tension here on earth. Oh, no, first it comes upside down. (laughs) That's how I confused poor Holly. The kingdom does not come to earth naturally. The kingdoms of this world are most definitely at war with the kingdom of God. Pick up your newspaper. Look, go to your MSN homepage or BBC homepage, if you prefer, and you will see that the kingdoms of this world are most definitely at war with the kingdoms of God. And the behavior of a citizen of the kingdom of God, one who is, I mean, we are all in the kingdom. Some of us have allegiance to the king. And the actions of someone with allegiance to the king are not what comes naturally. Virtues like hope and joy, contentment, stability, generosity, self-sacrifice, those are not what our culture tells us to go after. Culture says look out for number one. Culture says get yourself ahead. Culture says evaluate it carefully before you donate to it. Culture will tell us, you know, you have to have the new one. You have to have the bigger one, the better one. Culture will tell us, it's a depressing world out there. Don't trust anyone. But citizens of the kingdom with allegiance will live by upside-down values. It will not come naturally. I think of the Sermon on the Mount. Think of the parables of Jesus where often the kingdom is described. The poor will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The meek will inherit the earth. A guy who um, runs off with his father's retirement fund, we call him the prodigal son, is welcomed home. Homeless people are made the guests of honor at a banquet when those who are deserving of the invitation turn it down. 
a generous employer pays all his employees the same amount, the kingdom of heaven is like that, is like that, is like that. It doesn't come naturally. And now I think we're ready to talk about how the kingdom of God also comes with, with tension. Yes, intention with the world. And uh, I turn to a couple of the different parables, particularly Matthew 13 here. Matthew 13, where um, the kingdom of God is like a field where wheat and weeds are growing up together. And the workers come and say, hey, you want us to pull up the weeds now? And the owner of the field says, no, leave it. Leave it till the time of the harvest, and I will decide the difference between the wheat and the weeds. Get what he's after there? The kingdom of heaven is like a catch of fish. Some were good, and they were kept. Others were bad, and they were thrown out. When we live here in the kingdom, it's, it's messy living in the kingdom because we don't get to be the ultimate judges of the wheat and the weeds. Here's a really provocative quote from one of my favorite theologians, Leslie Newbegin. He says that the Christian gospel affirms that not in spite of, but because of our faith, we are required to provide space for disobedience, dissent, for disbelief, in faith that God, in his own way, and in his own time, will manifest his rule. Only that faith, in the long run, can truly sustain a free society. Provocative. But I think that's the kind of confidence in God, security in the kingdom, allegiance to the king, that allows Craig to be unflappable, in any discussion that allows us to navigate a truly messy world without being the moral police or without totally avoiding the tough subjects. So let's talk also about more about how we as the church represent this kingdom. We are the kingdom's community. Um, lots of different analogies used. The church represents the kingdom. The church is the instrument of the kingdom. I like the idea of the church being a demonstration plot. And I found out that most people have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. It was like the fourth time I've done this sermon, and people have just sat there going, <laughs> nobody's known what it is. I love going to Guatemala. Um, I've gone probably about seven different times, usually translating for short-term mission teams. And I learned when we go out to the villages in Guatemala and we're among the indigenous Indians there. They are very, very poor, and the land is just eroded. They have planted the same crops in the same place, the same way for generations. No change in crops, no change in nutrients, no change in methods. And the land is just its drying up and yielding less and less, and they, it's subsistence living it's getting worse and worse. So you go in and you say to these people, well, you should try some new crops. You should rotate your crops. You should put these two crops together. This will help that. This will provide nutrients. You should try this fertilizer. How about this tool? And from their poverty, they look back at you and they think, I will not take a risk on the unknown. I'll deal with the poverty I know. But I'm not going to try. I'm not going to take a risk on what you're talking about. So you build a demonstration plot. You take a couple acres and you put in the crops that you know will grow 
and you use the methods you know they can use, and you use the nutrients that will benefit the crops, and you grow a beautiful set of crops, and you say, see, you can do this. And then they are willing to take the risk. And so it is with the church and the world. The world looks at us and says, I am not going to take a chance on your lifestyle just because it's a theory that you have described to me. Show me. So we as the church are to be the demonstration plot. We're the example. We, the church, are to live here on earth in the kingdom as it is in heaven. We are to be the community that forgives. We are to be the community that works reconciliation in tough situations. We are the community that includes the unlovely, the ones that are, are without friends. We are the ones who demonstrate the value of being dependent on one another rather than rugged individualism. We don't expect these things of the world we are the demonstration plot. And if we demonstrate well, the world will take the risk of asking about the Savior. So I think here at SCUM, we, we do that. We do it well. I'm, I'm not putting us down for that. I think we do work to build a community that will attract others, that will be a good demonstration of a life lived in faith toward God. Tim Keel's pastor of um, Jacob's Well in Kansas City. There were some folks here from his church this morning. And the way he worded it was that in the church we should be good environmentalists. Kind of the same as the demonstration plot. We must be able to create, nurture, and sustain environments where those capacities, like I just talked about, forgiving, reconciling, including, loving, can be birthed, fed, and empowered. That's our job as the church to be the church, enticing to the world, demonstrating what this is all about. We don't go out fighting the world with the world's strategies. We're not out there to be, have more dazzle, more glitz, more power. We're just to be the church, demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God. We demonstrate the kingdom also, and we are the kingdom's servants. In chapter 9 of Matthew Jesus went about teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness, and he taught his disciples to do the same. Miracles, healings, exorcisms, Jesus did them, taught his disciples to do them. And I know here at SCUM, we've seen them. We've seen them all directly, exorcisms, healings, miracles. We've seen them directly, we've seen them immediately. But we are also to use this authority over time, when time is required. Um, I can remember as a young child, only about five, when John F. Kennedy was inaugurated, that famous phrase, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Well, surely, as the church, we don't need to be asking, what can society do for us? We should be asking, what can we do for our world, for our culture, for society? Um, we have the authority of the Savior. We have influence. And we have the community that gives us the strength to then serve. Creation care, human rights, justice issues, care of the oppressed, the chronically ill, vulnerable populations, 
a lavish generosity that should far exceed what we expect our government to give. Work to strengthen institutions that strengthen our society, strengthen our educational system, strengthen marriage, strengthen families, support them, preserve and promote human cultures, literature, arts, even languages, rebuild neighborhoods, support local economies. And again, I think it's scum, we, we grasp this. And I'm not in this um, sermon so much looking for a change in our actions as I am just a tweaking of our attitude that gives us a confidence to go out among the world as the community of the kingdom, as the servants of the kingdom, and finally as the messengers of the kingdom. Now, if we don't tell people we're doing it for Jesus, we're just another humanitarian. It's time to take away the ambiguity. It's time, folks, to learn scripture, to learn some theology, to learn to be comfortable in conversation about God and about the Bible and about why we do the things we do. Um, shameless plug for small groups and for the theology class taught by Leah and Craig starting in September. But gently, humbly, but why not confidently? Why not know our stuff so that when we're asked, we can reply, so that we can have a conversation with someone who does not understand the difference between a humanitarian aid society and the church? As the messengers of God, our methods have to match our message. I say that over and over, and it's kind of hard to say. The method must match the message. Jesus came in peace, reconciliation, redemption, restoration, renewal were his goals. Early in his ministry, he was tempted by Satan. Pull out all the power. Go ahead, Jesus. Pull it out. Make yourself some bread. Jump off a mountain. Show us what you can do, Jesus. And he turned down that temptation to misuse power. And he went to the cross instead. See, Jesus refused to let his methods contradict his message of peace. And we need to do the same, which means that we too will suffer in this world. We won't always get what we want. Even, at, even though our motives may be good, and it could be the best thing for the world, we may not get it. Ask the Christians in Egypt right now if they are being honored for their life as their churches and their homes are being wantonly destroyed, even to the point where major Arab newspapers are noting how random the violence against Christian, Christians is. But we cannot, we can't go against the methods of Jesus and claim we're doing his will. I can't fight a war to win a war. I can't steal in order to give to the poor. I can't shoplift. I can't cheat on my taxes in order to be able to do God's work. That's inconsistent. If a friend is stabbing me in the back, I can't stab them back. Underhanded coworker, I can't be more underhanded. I cannot use the methods of the world to proclaim the message of Jesus. Personally, I am sick and tired of being bullied by drunks in this neighborhood, and yet I cannot bully back. 
And if you don't think it takes discipline as a disciple not to throw it back at them, and that's what being a disciple is about, exercising the discipline to make sure our methods match the message of peace, reconciliation, redemption, renewal, restoration, salvation. Um, yeah, we just watched a movie over the weekend, and Craig and I really enjoyed it. You guys have probably just stare blankly at it. The company you keep, Robert Redford. <sighs> step near, I have to step near the fan. Anyhow, it's the story of a bunch of folks our age, you know, hitting 60, a bit above, a bit under, who were radicals in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, radical student movements. And one scene from, and they've all gone into hiding. They're all underground, and now they're all being exposed 30-plus years later. You know, and in one scene, one of the characters says, we tried sit-ins, we tried civil disobedience, we tried nonviolent you know, methods. They didn't work, and I couldn't wait. And so they were bombing buildings, et cetera, et cetera. But guys, you can't violate the message with the wrong methods, I have to say. And we cannot, we can't be manipulative with the gospel either. There's two ways we can be tempted to do that. The obvious way is to manipulate by guilt and shove it down people's throats and demand they obey it and live by it. We cannot do that. It's inconsistent with the message, the free choice that God gives us. But neither can we um, just water it down so that it feels better and everybody feels good. Because that is manipulating the gospel, too. That's denying the truth that goes with the grace. So if we are to be people of peace, we have to be true to the gospel and use it in both truth and grace. I, I cannot be complicit with evil in order to overcome evil because I've got the confidence in the rule of God. God in God's time will judge but neither can I just sit back and say, you know, whatever. Because to be a citizen of the kingdom with allegiance to God means I am very intentional, thoughtful. I consider. I discuss. I'm involved. And he writes, simply puts it this way. If we are to believe that part of the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come on earth the same way as it is in heaven, it is a risky prayer of submission and commission. So, like I said, I'm, I'm not necessarily out to give us some slam-bam great new idea of something we need to do, but I want to tweak our thinking to give us a bit more confidence. Kingdom of God, from creation to consummation, we're in it. Let's show our allegiance. Knowing that the king, the creator of all, has won the victory. Let's work with hope and confidence. Let's put ourselves out there. Not in a domineering, not in a moral police type of way, not manipulatively, but honestly, with truth and grace. And in a way, actually, I am um, ending up the Lord's Prayer because that very end that we Protestants have thrown in, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Um, just a bit of background there. 
that little ending has been in the prayer as it's been said probably since way back in the first couple hundred years of Christianity. No, that little ending isn't in Scripture. And our Catholic brothers and sisters who normally don't say that love to shove it out. Like, we say it the way Scripture has it, and you put something else in. But it sounds good as a prayer and probably was taken out of First Chronicles 2911, where David, that great psalmist, that great poem and songwriter, wrote, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted head over all. So I think later when we say the Lord's Prayer, I think it's okay that we include that. And I hope that we understand the kingdom of God just a little bit better and live in it with confidence, humility, but great courage. Amen. <laughs>